Hello and welcome to the Leadership and Insurance Podcast. This is the podcast that brings you the greatest innovation change makers in the world of insurance and insure tech. We speak to innovation leaders from carriers and brokers. We speak to insure tech founders and C-suite executives. And we bring you all of the people that add value to that community, whether it be private equity, venture capitalists, or even people like organizational psychologists and thought leaders and futurists. We try really hard to bring you the most innovative people in the world of insurance on a global basis. So with that in mind, we'd love your support. So please like, share, follow or subscribe to wherever you get your podcasts. I'm your host, Alex Bond. Welcome to the Leadership Insurance Podcast. This podcast is brought to you by FinPro. FinPro is a leading insurtech specialist recruitment business that operates on a global basis. We have delivered assignments across North America, throughout Europe and into Asia. We are super excited to speak to anyone who has some recruitment challenges that is either starting or scaling a business. And we're confident we can help you find the people to help you innovate the world of insurance one new hire at a time please visit our website, www.wearefinpro.com for more information. Good morning and welcome to the Leadership and Insurance Podcast. I'm your host, Alex Bond, and I'm very lucky today to be joined by James Benham. Um, James, hello, sir. How are you? Howdy. Doing great. How are you? I'm very good. I'm very good. Thank you. I wish I had my standing desk set up. I, I do have one. I'm just not at it at the moment. It's, yeah, the freedom I'm quite jealous of. Um, and, uh, and also you get a great angle on the, on the, on the cam shot as well. But um, before we jump to that, I, I wanted to introduce you. And um, as, as I just briefly asked off air, it was like, which, which business are we leading with? Because uh, you don't have one, not two, but three insurance-related um, businesses that you run, TerraClaim, Smart Compliance, and JB Knowledge. So um, I'm not going to try and untangle that mess. I'm going to leave that completely up to you. So um, please, James, if you wouldn't mind introducing yourself and obviously the businesses that you run. Sounds great. My name is James Benham. I'm CEO of these three businesses. Uh, we're out of College Station, Texas, which for those of you who are listening abroad, is in the middle of the greatest state in the world known as Texas. Uh, it is it is awesome. We're in a wonderful college town, home of Texas A&M University, one of the largest universities in the world, about, uh, just about 75,000 students. I went to school here 25 years ago and started this business in my dorm room my senior year. I started JB Knowledge. So I'll start with that. JB Knowledge is a... Uh, a 200 plus person insurance uh, software company that builds software for insurance carriers, brokers, third party administrators, and pharmacy benefit managers. Uh, I, I started it 21 years ago uh, when I was a senior in the core cadets at Texas A&M and, and have been building all kinds of software ever since. Didn't start out in insurance. We started out building websites and then custom software for manufacturing and then about three years later, got started working for our first insurance clients and fell in love with the, the needs and the challenges in the insurance business. Um, and, uh, and then a couple of years later, uh, I actually fell in love with another industry that kind of happened through insurance, and that was construction, because there's so much insurance in construction. And so I always wanted to be a product and a service company, not just selling time, but selling product. And yep. so in 2006, we, fir- we built our first successful product because I had built five before that that were not successful. 
uh, called SmartBid. And it was a pre-qualification and bidding platform that construction companies used to satisfy their bonding requirements because mm -hmm. bonding really got complicated in 07 and 08 and on. And yep. surety, bond, surety bonding, big part of the uh, of the risk management and insurance industry. And, mm -hmm. uh, and, and, and uh, of course, sub-default insurance requires pre-qualification as well, SDI, which is a pretty common product of Zurich and some others. So uh, we got into construction. I ran that company. It was a product company. Turned out a lot of people wanted it. We got mm -hmm. about a, we got about 1,100 uh, big GCs to use it, including uh, some from the UK and from mm -hmm. Hong Kong and from Dubai. And we got about a quarter million subcontractors to use the platform. And I sold it um, in 2018. Uh, the really cool thing about that sale is I got to keep all of my um, all my engineers and all my employees. Uh, I sold the, I sold the product to a competitor, and they they're still running it to this day. And uh, got got even deeper into the insurance business because uh, we had maintained this insurance software development business the whole time we had SmartBid, mm. and we really started growing it even more and. And said, you know, there's these two things that we have to pursue. And uh, one we had started to pursue in 2010 as a part-time experiment, and that was certificate of insurance tracking and collection and analysis. Yep. And uh, we and we 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 had some clients in 2018 when I sold SmartBid, and we said, let's scale that up. And so we did, and we've got a couple hundred clients now using that platform for certificate of insurance tracking, collection analysis, and certificate issuance. Mm -hmm. um, and so it's all about accord forms. It's all about certificates of insurance. And then uh, I've always been working on proprietary in-house claim software for our clients, but I really wanted to solve the claims problem for self-insured groups, companies, funds, and, and small regional TPAs because yeah. they couldn't afford to build their own claim software. And they a lot of times can't afford the really big claim softwares on the market. And so we decided to... Uh, invest and build a claim system, which is now called TerraClaim. Mm -hmm. And so th these are all three separate companies, but uh, it, we, we, uh, cause we, you know, the, a service company and a, and a product company are, are run completely differently. I mean, they're, they're yeah. com and I, I've been doing this 21 years. Mm. And so we've always kept them as separate uh, businesses, similar leadership. Um, and, uh, we've bootstrapped all of them. We've never raised a dollar of funding from outside sources for any of wow. the companies that we've started. It's, it, it started with uh, 5,000 bucks in my dorm room and a, uh, and a 1995 Ford Mustang and, yeah. uh, driving me around the state. And so we're, we're still bootstrapped. We're still self-funded, no debt, no banks, no investors. And, um, we've got all together about 270 employees. And um, that's that's what we do is is insure tech twenty four seven, buddy. Awesome, awesome. It's so much to unpick there. So let's um, yeah, let's uh, let's let's I suppose kick off. I I wanted to take you right back. So let's let's focus on JB knowledge uh, for for a minute there. So um, you obviously have engineers at your disposal. You tackle projects on an ad hoc basis. Um, and I'm sure there's some there's some really strong themes. I want to get into that, but I wanted to ask you this from a recruitment. This is my recruiter's head on, and and we constantly see in the technology space, working with insurance carriers, uh, brokers, etc., that people must have worked in the insurance industry as technologists. I wanted to get your opinion. Um, how much insurance domain knowledge is important when it comes to technology? To being a developer. 
Yeah, yeah to, to working in the tech team of an insurance company, how important is that domain knowledge? Okay, it's not important to getting the job. It's important to improving in the job. Yeah. Now, and I'll say this, like, I, it, I, I do not require that people that come in have insurance domain knowledge. They have to be good engineers. Yeah. I, I do not have the time to spend four years to make them good computer scientists. Mm -hmm. I don't have the time to do that. That, But we will teach them everything they need to know about insurance domain expertise. We have mm -hmm. a whole curriculum. In fact, we, we have a, an internal university. I even have a dean that runs our own college. It's not an accredited college. It's, it's just for us internally, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But we have a dean. We have full-time teachers. We have online curriculum. We have face-to-face -face curriculum. I will teach them everything they need to know about insurance domain expertise. Yeah. That that we will do that. We will also finish. Uh, can, can, you're British, Alex. Yes. Yeah. So you're you're familiar with the concept of a finishing school. Yes. Uh, can, yeah. Can, can, consider this a finishing school for their development skills mm -hmm. and a primer on insurance. Mm. They 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 need to understand what a policy is and what a claim is and what a reserve is and what payments are and what subrogation is. And like, they're going to have to know that. I mean, they're, they're mm. going to have to have some understanding of how this works. They're going to have mm -hmm. to understand uh, the, the mechanics of insurance. Mm. But but they don't have to have it. They don't have to have it before they come here because no. if they, if they suck as engineers, we cannot use them. But <laughs> if they're, if they're great engineers and have zero insurance knowledge, we can turn them into insurance experts. Mm. But does that culturally resonate with you? Like that's my experience sitting on my side of the pond. It's also sort of seeing the recruiter. We, we have that concern from clients sometimes that someone doesn't know about enough domain. And I always say to them, if you get the smartest tech person in the room, they'll figure that part out. They, oh, they yeah. can get to that, you know. Um, but yeah. is that yeah. something you ever see? Um, is that kind of anecdotally something you've come across in your time? That they are capable of learning insurance? No, that the, the client's concerned about how much insurance domain knowledge that, like, for example, your engineers would have when they're working on a problem. I mean, yeah, there, there, there is some concern. I think the, the, the people who need the most insurance domain knowledge are your business analysts, your team leaders, your quality yeah. assurance engineers, the people that translate the business need into the technology specs and then test it. They have to have the best understanding like my product owners, you know, the, the, the ones that really own the backlog and the direction of Paraclaim and Smart Compliance, mm -hmm. they've got to be deep. They have to understand how this works. They've got to understand their clients' problems and why it's an issue. Uh, on, our, on JB Knowledge, on the professional services side, when we engage for a carrier or a broker or a TPA, they, and the lead, the team lead, the account lead, the BA, they've got to really have their head soaked in insurance the developers it, yeah. remember this like if, if you have to choose between a developer who knows about insurance and a developer who knows how to code pick the one who knows how to code yeah because the one who knows how to code will make sure that you have a scalable secure robust you know bulletproof application that that's what you you have to have that mm. you have to have that it's just think about it this way it's just like a like a home builder or a or a commercial office builder, you know, the architect needs to really understand what the space is being used for, right? 
Mm-hmm. Like when you, if you're a, if you're a business owner and I've, I've engaged a lot of architects, we've built a lot of office, we have offices in three countries at JB knowledge. I'm also a, a, a former city council member uh, in my town. I'm currently a regent at a public university. I, I've built a lot of buildings, whether they're yeah. from my university or from my city or from my company. I really care if the architect has experience building things that I need because he's going to design, he or she is going to design the space and mm-hmm. how it's used and understand the needed use. The builder, I, I almost could care less if yeah. they have that much experience because I need them to be great builders, yeah. like they understand the science of building. And the same thing is with technology. Now look, certainly I'm not saying that if you gave me a great developer who had great insurance expertise, that I wouldn't be chasing after them at a hundred miles an hour to get them on board of my team. <laughs> Cause I would be, I'd be yeah. all over them. Right. Yeah, I mean, yeah, of course yeah. I want that, yeah. but, but you know, life, everything is a trade-off in life. And often you have to pick something. And if I had to pick it, I want the great engineer. I'm going to bring in a great VA, uh, a great SME, a great subject matter expert who really has, you know, we have some wonderful SMEs here mm-hmm. that have decades of experience in insurance, but mm. I don't, I don't need them to write code. I need them to, to translate mm-hmm. requirements. Yeah, that's that. Do you know what, that's such a helpful thing to have on the for clarity because because I, I complete I couldn't agree more and I, and I think domain level expertise in insurance is something we overplay even within the insurance industry. I think I think you know if you took the smartest person that works in claims, they're probably going to be a pretty good underwriter and they'd probably be a pretty good broker. You know, it, it's it's like smart people knowing what they know and then and then getting out of their way once you've kind of skilled them up. But you do need to make that investment in the kind of internal kind of uh, training structure as, as, as you rightly have yourself. So, um, yeah, but that, I, I just had to ask you as a technologist working in the space because it's <laughs> it's like the bug, it's the bugbearer of the recruitment industry going, you know, you see yeah. these great, great roles. And, um, and, and, and also it's kind of one of the weaknesses of, uh, bringing new skills into the industry has been this insistence that they have to have had that kind of prior domain knowledge. And you think, well, then we're we're not seeing the true innovation because we're not being innovative in terms of where we hire people from. So, um, yeah, it's something that resonates with me all the time. Um, I wanted to ask you about your 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 you've got the two insurtechs, uh, smart compliance um, and TerraClaim, um, yep. both streamlining processes, um, and but. I wanted to ask you about open information sharing. Um, open banking, we've talked about a lot. Open banking type models. Um, we, we're sort of just starting to see the kind of the start of the kind of open insurance process. Um, I wanted to see sort of how you how far you think that's going to go. Obviously, regulation plays a part, but so some of the kind of resistance and some of the slow progress seems to be this sort of lack of willingness to sort of share data and share information. Um, well, why, that, why do you why do you think that is? Why do you think they're why do you think they're reticent to share data on who has what insurance? Well, because that's always been the kind of it's to a certain extent it's been the USP. It's been like you know you can get after your competitors' kind of clients. You know I can understand it, but I think it's also like it's it's almost an old fashioned view of the world. Like that information isn't valuable. It's it's as valuable as people think it is. I think it's been overplayed. Um, how you look after that customer the lifetime value of that customer, if you can keep hold of them, that's, that's the important thing for me, but um, yeah, yeah, I don't know. But, 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 but yeah. golly, you know, it's like the old 80, 20 rule. Everything comes down to 80, 20 and human nature comes into this a lot. 
there's 20% of the population that just is almost amoral, maybe 10% that they don't care about playing by a common set of rules. And mm. unfortunately, the, the, the vast majority of people are good, moral, ethical people, right? I mean, mm -hmm. I mean, think about how many amazing, good, moral, ethical people you have interacted with in insurance that care about the, that care about the insured, that care about the claimant, that care about the claim, that care about paying and doing what's right and indemnifying them. And, but think of all the litigation over the last hundred years against insurance companies forcing mm -hmm. a smaller select group of companies to pay out when you and I both know they should have, yeah. right? So, yeah. so th that means that not everybody places as high a value on an open, transparent, ethical marketplace, yeah. right? I mean, that's obvious because otherwise there wouldn't be insurance commissioners in jail, insurance companies getting sued mm. over the last hundred years. I mean, I'm not talking about current lawsuits. I'm talking about really old historical litigation mm -hmm. and case after case after case after case. Um, you know, the, the entire life insurance industry here in the United States blew up multiple times before they came in and regulated it because yep. of the amount of the amount of, you know, pump and dump on on getting premium and then going bankrupt. You know, it, it, it was real. That's why that's why we have that's why we have a regulated market and capital requirements because yep. of what happened, not because of fears, but because of actual reality. Mm. The other thing that you've got to really count is never count out the creativity of a good trial lawyer. And yeah. that is, you, you got to think about how, what a heavy role in particular in the United States that, that litigation plays in insurance. Mm -hmm. And if everybody's insurance, and, and I, I'm not sure how far you're, you're positing that we would go in, in an open market, maybe disclosing who had what insurance from whom sold by whom, who, who was carrying it and what their limits were. Let's just say that it's an open blockchain and that everybody writes every the policy limits who the carrier is, who the broker is, and who the insured is to an open blockchain, yep. right? Because that, that's what you would probably write. Because, because right now, if you get pulled over in the United States and you get a speeding ticket, they look up a database to find out if you have auto insurance. They don't ask mm -hmm. you, but they, they check, mm -hmm. right? But that's like one of the only lines we have that in. We don't have that in home. And, and that's because the government made the insurance companies submit that data to them, right? Yeah, yeah. So let's posit a world where you had a blockchain and everybody contributed all of their data to that blockchain and could read, read from it. Well, every trial lawyer and every litigator, every personal injury lawyer in the country would scramble to get access to that blockchain. Mm. Because the second they find out there's a claim and they find out what the insurance is and who covers it and what the limits are, it is, it is used against that insurance company in the court of law. Yeah. And so I think that litigation and kind of the bad actor principle that you've got a small group of very bad actors that would mm. abuse that type of open information um, will probably preclude it from happening. The only way I've seen um, open data exchange on insurance information is when insurance commissioners mandate it. Yeah. Yeah, which is frustrating, isn't it? Because it, it's it's the bad actor principle is is so counterculture to insurance. You know, the the um, 
you know the law of large numbers the 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 law of, of, of you know the, the the people protecting the people in, in a bad situation like that that the principle of insurance the is 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 upheld. the whole principle the whole is, principle is is community help <laughs> exactly and then undermined by the bad actor so it's an interest it's interesting so just uh um i think you're a good friend rob galbraith mentioned on this podcast is that actually kind of and it leads into that is that really the true innovation needs to come from the regulators because that's that that could only be solved by a regulatory kind of either mandate and even if they mandated they'd have to put limitations on what could be done with that information with respect to lawyers etc yeah who 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 can access it i mean just because yeah. it's blockchain doesn't mean it's openly accessible you exactly. can you can yeah. secure access to a blockchain right like, so you, you can make it so only certain players can get mm -hmm. access to a blockchain. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and so I, I think that might be really useful. I mean, I, again, I think the only way it happens is the way it happened with auto insurance. You have a, yeah. you have a right, you have a regulator mandate the submission of policy data, but just, just think about the, the, the behavior. And I saw this often in construction and it was unfortunate, a general contractor, requests insurance from a subcontractor. They request to be named as an additional insured. The subcontractor goes to the cheapest broker they can find, gets the cheapest policy from the lowest rated carrier they can find. They get through the process of providing proof of insurance through a certificate of insurance that names the GC as the additional insured. They pay one month of premium and then they cancel the policy. Yeah. All right, so GC thinks he's covered. The sub knows they're not covered. They're in violation of the contract. They don't know it. And there is no way to verify. Mm. The, you tell, how do you verify? Other mm. than requesting a new certificate of insurance every month from your vendors, which is not super practical, right? No. So now this is, again, a fringe case. I mean, we're in the certificate of insurance collection analysis business. I, we do not see this as the majority, the, the vast majority of people. Mm -hmm. You know, they, they get their policy, they keep their policy, they pay on their policy. It, you know, the vast majority, it's fine. And, and collecting COIs is a, is a wonderful risk mitigation tool because you're telling people that you're serious about them having insurance and them naming you as an additional insured. And you're telling them it's a condition of their contract. And then you're following it up with enforcement. And if you, and if you know about contract law, if you don't enforce your provisions when you have the option to, it becomes very hard to enforce them later when you need to. Mm -hmm. So so that's the that's the catch here, you know. So I, I think open data, man, I, I'm a technologist. I've been writing software since I was 11 years old. I have mm. always loved the idea of open sharing of data, of open APIs, of public, you know, publishing data to com I mean, it's great. There's a lot of great things about it, but you have to remember that 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 human nature in 10,000 years of modern civilization, let's say the the first multifamily housing, the first uh, big dwellings were built 9,500 years ago in, in ancient. Oh, I've lost you slightly, James. Looks like my uh, my battery ran out of my headset. Sorry. Can you hear me? No, that's all right. I can hear you now. Yeah, I can hear you. Yeah, um, but but in, 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 in the 10,000 years of modern civilization, Human beings haven't really, the human nature just hasn't changed that much. Mm. You have a lot of really good people. You have a small group that aren't, and they, and they mess a lot of stuff up 
for the majority of civilization. And that, and that's kind of the, the whole premise of insurance too, isn't it? I mean, yeah. If, yeah. If, if everyone, if you had, if you had a majority of issues with the majority of people, insurance would break down and it wouldn't work. Yeah. But most people drive carefully. Most people take care of their houses. Most people are careful. Most people follow the rules. And that very, that very human dynamic is, allows insurance to exist. Otherwise the, the math wouldn't work out. Yeah, no, absolutely. It's one of the things I've questioned about this kind of, um, when we're out to price on an individual basis, um, dynamic insurance is, is a great thing, uh, but I do worry about, there are certain people out there that manage to get insurance and they deserve and need insurance. They're not doing anything wrong, but they're on paper, a bad risk. And, yep. and therefore they are, and then insurance becomes less affordable for those people. And, and I do well, worry. And then, and then you, you get into a lot of arguments around discrimination too. Exactly. Because like that's okay. So the data technically show, and, there, and there's, there's arguing data on this on whether credit scores actually give you an accurate assessment of the risk level of a person. Mm. Right. Mm. But they've been used for a long time as an indicator yeah, yeah, yeah. of what you're going to pay for risk. Yeah. And, 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 and there's a lot of argument and a lot of discussion around the ability for people to use credit scores in assessing risk mm. Uh, mm. because some people are just a higher risk category and then they, they might get, you know, non-renewed or priced out of the market mm. if you really allowed for individual rating. I mean, Alex, I'll be honest. I'm a pilot. I fly airplanes. I'm a wonderful pilot. I am, I am not a fantastic car driver only because I like to drive fast. I like to accelerate. I turn harder than you would probably feel comfortable. Um, and, and, and so if I actually put an OBD2 port dongle in my car and track my driving, it wouldn't flag me on it as, as a good risk. Yeah. Do you know how many speeding tickets I've gotten? I'm 42. I got one when I was 16 <laughs> because I accelerate to the point of the speed limit. I, I, I race up to the speed limit and then I put my cruise control on. Yeah. I enjoy acceleration, but, but those OBD2 sensors read acceleration, deceleration and G's on turns. Mm. That doesn't mean I'm breaking any laws and it doesn't <laughs> mean that I'm going to get any wrecks. You know how many accidents I've been in 42 years, one, and it was a lady who rear-ended me when I was stopped at a stoplight. Yeah. So, yeah. That, it, it, so, so Alex, the data would tell you that I'm a bad risk because I have a high, I have high degrees of acceleration and deceleration, and I have high G turns. Mm. Right. I've got a lead foot and I have a heavy brake because I like to drive fast. But, but my my loss history is nil. Mm-hmm. My ticket history is one 25 years ago. Mm -hmm. So that's why you got to really be careful because, because sometimes the brilliance of insurance and this is the law of averages and not the law of individuality, right? And, yeah. and um, it, it, it allows all of us to have affordable levels of risk. Yeah, it's, yeah, it's something that I've, I've, I've spotted a lot. Um, I was laughing as you were saying that because I've got two speeding tickets my whole life and I got them both when I was 17 um, and they were six days apart. Um, but I uh, nearly lost my license, but I didn't luckily enough. Um, but uh, moving on to things that I like to talk about, probably appropriately, claims is my soft spot. I joke about this all the time, but I started in my career in insurance and claims. 
Uh, I always love to fly the flag for the claims person. Um, I wanted to ask you about, does it surprise you that not more, and I know there's quite a heavy amount of investment, but there's been, we've seen a huge amount of investment in distribution, particularly um, different distribution models. Um, not seen as much investment in claims and claims tech. And the reason it bothers me so much is that I run a podcast that goes out twice a week. We always talk about customer centricity. Not enough people are spending money fixing the claims process. And that would seem to me be the most customer centric part you could do. Um, I don't know if you agree with that, but I kind of, does it surprise you that we're not seeing more claims tech come out? Uh, it does. Of course, I'm pleased with it because I am so heavily invested in claims tech. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. It's good um, for you. But yeah. yeah, yeah. So smart compliance is a claim subrogation tool, right? That's what, that's why you collect COIs so you can subrogate claims. Mm -hmm. And then TerraClaim is a claims management software that ma manages comp and GL and auto and property. Mm -hmm. uh, soon a lot more lines than that. I've absolutely seen it. Uh, it's, it's partly a function of how much you can charge for software, right? I mean, sure. if, you, if you look at what policy administration and management systems cost versus what claim software costs, they're, they're different price points. Yeah. Um, you know, and, 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 and so that, that's probably a lot of the appeal. Um, that and people believe that if you build some really, really great policy management, quoting, binding, billing, uh, software that you can jump straight into being an MGA, or if you get the capital, you can be a carrier. And mm -hmm. if you're in the claims tech space, it's unlikely you're going to want to be a TPA, right? Yeah. It's just not, not, it's not very likely. And so uh, definitely I've seen less investment, definitely I've seen fewer players in the space. I've dedicated the vast majority of my career to claims software. And, you know, my first custom software projects were around, um, my, my, my first big insurance projects 14, 15 years ago were all around claims management and uh, working for TPAs. Eventually, I started working for carriers and brokers and PBMs, but uh, still, we have a huge, heavy focus on claims. Mm. And, um, you know, they, they say a claim is a claim is a claim, a policy is not, but a claim is. And that's, that's not necessarily true. Um, mm. You know, a, a comp claim is not a GL claim, is not a an auto claim is not a property claim. So you really got to understand the nuances and the differences. But, but what excites me about claims tech is the opportunity to dramatically improve the financials of the insured. <laughs> I mean, mm. really dramatically. I mean, you know the difference between a properly adjudicated claim and an improperly adjudicated claim can be 300%, right? Or, or let's put, put, flip the inverse. You, you can spend 90% less if, if you screw up a claim and they yeah. get legal representation, your claim cost is going to skyrocket, right? Mm -hmm. And that's the way it goes. If you screw up a comp claim and you don't order the properly the proper ancillary medical services to help that worker get back to work, that claim is going to skyrocket. Mm -hmm. That what, what was a $10,000 ankle injury could turn into a $50,000 knee injury could turn into a hundred thousand dollar back surgery, mm -hmm. right? That, that the comp is complicated because if 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 you don't get in there quickly and help get the worker back to work and indemnify them, restore them to their original condition quickly, those injuries tend to compound themselves and get worse and worse and worse. Mm. Right. The same could be said for a house. Mm -hmm. If a if a home insurer is not really good at 
processing claims proactively. If you have a major hailstorm and you're not in there trying to get those roofs fixed, you're going to end up with all kinds of water damage, mold. I mean, you're going to, you're going to end up with a ton of knock-on effects. You know, the, the reality is that, uh, you know, people who carry risk have a massive amount of incentive to be aggressive on claims, to pay them out quickly, to pay them out correctly, and to restore and indemnify the insured properly. Because overall, the math would say that you're going to really reduce everybody's cost of risk. Mm. Uh, you know, rather than dragging something out, you drag out a medical case, you don't know where it's going to go. Mm-hmm. If it goes to legal representation, okay, tack on a few hundred thousand dollars for lawyer fees, then tack on, you know, all the additional ancillary medical services the lawyer's going to order that mm-hmm. you, that you're not direct. I mean, it, it, it gets messy quick. So yeah. I, that's why I'm excited about claims tech. I think it gets less attention because there's less money in claims tech than in policy administration. And mm-hmm. there's less of a chance that you can uh, upsize yourself being an MGA or a carrier later, like so many insure techs want to be. Yeah. Um, we're an insure tech, but we provide tooling for the major companies. We don't, we don't have a, um, you know, we, 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 we provide the tools, right? We're not, we're not jumping in as an MGA into the market. Yeah. The master, the master plan is not to be something else. It's the, yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a, a route yeah. in itself. Um, our, our master plan is build lots of recurring revenue, licensing technology to a bunch of folks that are self-insured groups, funds, companies, TPAs, yeah. and, you know, continue to go to markets. It's the, it's the, it's the playbook we've had for 21 years is B2B software as a service. Uh, it's a, it's a wonderful playbook. We've really enjoyed building it. Um, and, and, and the insurance market is just so exciting. It's dynamic. There's a lot of opportunity to improve people. Uh, that, that's why we've, we've hung in here, hung in here so long. Yeah. I, it's just the claims process. It, it fascinates me. I mean, so I've been doing, I've been in insurance for 16, 17 years. I've been in recruitment for 15 years. I, you know, I've been in tech for three and I, and I sit there and every time I'm saying, you know, we hear this, like the claims process has got to be better. It's going to be faster. It's going to be more efficient. And I, I, and I always think we're getting there. And then my friend had his car stolen on the weekend. Uh, he's got CCTV footage of the drive and he was talking me through this claims process and I'm sort of defending the insurer, the insurance carrier uh, who shall not be named. And just having this dreadful experience, just having this, woeful you know aggressive like uh, un sort of compromising experience that was kind of set at the default of you're probably trying to defraud us and you know and just all of that bad stuff that people believe that the bad press that the insurance industry has but it's just sitting there you know uh they don't want to pay claims and i'm like they do like the the, the default is we want to pay claims we want to pay claims quickly so it's fascinating to me how far we need to go and and on that route i was going to ask you is the ultimate goal is the sort of claims panacea that we um fully automated uh no touch almost parametric is that the ultimate goal or do you think i think still- in some I, yeah. I think in some lines of business yes yeah uh, that, that is not going to be possible for every line of business i mean no but, but if you, I think in auto and, and property, um, your goal is to pay them as quickly as possible using as much parametric, you know, as many parameters, right? Parametric insurance is about the use of parameters to do things, right? Yeah, yeah, And yeah. If, if, you can, if you can deploy a drone to perform an aerial scan and do an assessment, I mean, right? There's a lot of things you can do now. I mean, hell, we, we have satellite providers that can give you darn near real-time coverage on any location <laughs> 
country. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. there's a lot of really good data at hand that would allow you to automatically pay out. And then, you know, you, you know our, we our weather forecasting and then weather tracking data where you can identify that there was a hailstorm in very specific neighborhoods and you can automatically initiate claims and start collecting data, have them take their own pictures or, you know, fly a drone over the whole neighborhood and get, get up, updated information to start paying them out. I mean, yeah. that, that's, that, that I think for me is the, the big, big goal is really cutting down the amount of waste. But that's, that's like the, that's like the, the ultimate goal. The yeah. penultimate, the penultimate goal, uh, you know, what, what's what's the step two or three before that is just mm. reduce the sheer amount of manual garbage that claims adjusters have to have to do. And you and I both know they have to do a whole lot of emailing, a whole bunch of data entry. They have to do a whole bunch of uh, manual tasks mm. that software has been long capable of replacing that they're still performing on a regular basis. And one of the mm -hmm. one of the big things that we're tackling in TerraClaim is is connecting ancillary service providers with the claim adjuster because the majority of claim adjusters email all these medical providers, all that data. I mean, it's, it's insane how much workflow is done over email on medical work for work comp. And that's got to end. You know, we, mm. we, can, we can streamline the entire process. The majority of phone calls claims adjusters get are not from the claimant. The majority mm. of phone calls claims adjusters and comp get are from the medical providers asking when they're going to get paid. That can be automated. Mm -hmm. I mean, so and it is it is wasting incredible amounts of time, which is that's time that's taking adjusters away from spending time with the claimant, helping them get, get back to work or mm -hmm. spending time with the claimant, helping them restore their home or restore their car or restore their building or 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 right. You know, the other three or four yeah, other yeah, things. Yeah, yeah of so course. so that so the, the intermediary steps are let's cut the manual crap out. Let's yeah. focus on integrations. Let's focus on automation. Let's focus on the use of machine learning. In the long term, let's focus on auto adjudication because certainly auto adjudication is it has to it has to be the ultimate goal. Mm -hmm. And uh, because because you'll always need claims adjusters, but you want them working on higher thinking, higher value tasks. Yeah, yeah. And, and the other thing is, you know, I was I was trying to extrapolate it to its end point, which is that claims are automatically paid out, all that sort. And almost like claims, almost. That, that interaction, that human interaction, almost should become a sort of white glove service that's an additional cost. Like, like because if you want that, like my dad is in his 70s, early 70s, no, he's turning 70. My dad is the only guy in the world that phones eBay and Amazon on a regular basis. Like, like he loves to phone them up because uh, he's always going to be that guy that wants to phone people up. And I think, I think you're always going to have those people. Um, he'd probably pay more though, if, if he could talk to someone. But... You know, I'm at the other end of the scale. I, I don't want to talk to anybody. I want, I want to just paid out. And I, but that that for me is this: could we go that far? So claims becomes a thing that is is almost an added cost of your insurance policy. Do you do you see it? Do you do you think we could get to that point? Well, I don't know about added cost. I mean, I, I guess you could strip down your claims administration services and offer a discounted no contact claims administrator service. Sure. And just have it on the menu that if people have to get involved, it's a different rate. Yeah. And, yeah, yeah. and uh, so you, you could potentially do that. Um, yeah. Or you, you could just deal with, you could, I mean, there, there's a lot, there's a lot of challenges that we're facing in a, in a labor market like we have, mm. where you have a rapidly aging population. Our birth rate is lower than our replacement rate. So it's lower than 2.2. .2. Mm. 
So we're going to continue to have staffing and labor issues in all yeah. industries. Yeah. Yeah. And, and so um, you could say, hey, we're just going to be able to actually properly give everybody the amount of time they need. Mm. Or you could, I imagine you'd have some providers, whether they're fully bundled programs, like a carrier is fully bundled, and they're going to offer a lower rate. Um, or if you're in a TPA, whether you're going to bifurcate your rate structure and, and charge more for human touch and less for automated touch. Mm. Um, you know, I think I think we're we're a little ways out to see how that's going to play out in the market, but uh, you'd have to have the technology that supports it before you can move there. Um, sure, sure. And and again, like I would believe the low touch lemonade story more if they didn't have bad financials. <laughs> <laughs> well, we have we've discussed that a few times. I'm a believer in uh, funda- I'm a believer in fundamentals, and uh, yeah, you know, okay. I'm, yeah. a, I'm a bootstrapped entrepreneur. Okay. Yeah, yeah. I'm a, I'm a, and I've got a book titled the bootstrapped entrepreneur. It's coming out later this year. Oh, are you? <laughs> and, yeah. And it's all about bootstrapping a business. And I can tell you what, when you're a bootstrapper, you pay attention to fundamentals. You pay attention to fundamentals. You look at the little stuff. Yeah. And you know, if you're, if you have an underwriting loss <laughs> or if you, you know, I mean, at the end of the day, if your company loses money, it's it, okay. Well, that's problematic, right? I mean, that's mm-hmm. really problematic. In particular, when you get to large scale and you still lose money, um, it, it, it's challenging. So I think the um, the jury is still out because mm-hmm. we have to see the major we have to see the major insurtechs go public, disclose their financials and turn a better underwriting profit than the mainline carriers before I think we actually test out some of these big theories that are making. Yeah. I know that insurance is, I know that technology is dramatically improving insurance because I've seen it myself over 20 years. It's dramatically improving the underwriting and claims management, policy administration, billing operations and insurance companies. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Without a doubt, I can mm-hmm. give you a thousand examples of how it is dramatically improving operations and insurance companies and how it's allowing people to not do so much boring, menial, manual, tedious labor. Yeah. Yeah. Um, do, but I, I think the jury's still out on whether the InsurTech revolution, uh, where you're going to have dramatically lower rates and, and, and the carrier still be profitable, is actually going to really happen. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I mean, I don't even think the jury is out at the moment. I think the jury's come back in and said, no, that's not happening yet. And we, or we haven't got it right yet. I, I think the theories are great. Um, but until they're proven, as you say, I mean, I, I, it's been interesting for me in the evolution of the people that I've worked with. You know, I've worked with a lot of kind of uh, pseudo carriers and carriers and digital MTAs. And then I've worked with a lot of like SaaS companies that are in the insure tech space. And what's interesting for me is this, like, the SaaS kind of almost came a bit later like the investment was like right let's look at these exciting new distribution neo insurers digital mgas and now there's a lot more interest in these SaaS businesses and i think that in itself is a recognized that's the recognition of going yeah no the carriers know what they're doing like the traditional market knows what it's doing when it's managing risk could it do it better yes and if we can save a you know half a percentage point for a big carrier that's a very, very, very big number. Um, so, you know, let's focus on that. So I think even that trend towards the investment into kind of SaaS related plays into your short tech market tells you a story in itself. Um, yeah, I, it, I, it does. It yeah. does. And, and again, 
let's just pick on lemonade for a minute. When <laughs> when revenue is accelerating and losses are accelerating, you've got a major fundamentals problem. Yeah. Right. So they went from twenty two point five um, million to ninety four point four million from eighteen to twenty twenty. Losses went from fifty two million to one hundred and twenty million on pre tax income. I mean that that's that's scary right like that's that's a when when you see the gap widening you say well there's a there's a you have a major fundamentals issue and at some point in its scale of any business the business has to start making money yeah um but especially once it goes public it has to start making money yeah although i don't know it depends depends how much they lean into the tech side of the insure tech piece so i think that's it like tech businesses are sort of allowed to sit meandering and not making Ish. money amazon yeah. was amazon was allowed to lose money a little bit but they yeah. there was they came under immense pressure to mm. generate a profit so did facebook so did google so did apple they all came under incredible pressure once they ipo'd the public markets there is no further exit after the public market unless you sell a public company to another public company there's no further real exit you've got to make money at some point you've got to return uh, equity to the shareholders mm. Mm. I, I, I'm gonna I'm gonna step away from this dangerous ground. I'm, I'm gonna get on as a as a <laughs> as a guy that needs to make his money in that market. But look, it's been <laughs> fascinating. Um, thank you so much for your time. I'm really conscious we don't want to run over our kind of a a lot of time. Um, I think this could have gone on for hours. I think we might have to come back and pick a few things apart. But um, I always like to give people the opportunity, James, to kind of um, you know directly put a call out there. We are a recruitment business. We do specialize in insure tech. Um, are you guys hiring at the moment? Is there anything you're looking for? Um, where should people reach out to you? Yeah, so you can hit up our uh, the professional service site, JB Knowledge. That's jbknowledge.com. That's our software uh, development and outsourcing business. Our uh, uh, my company that does claims is terraclaim.com. And uh, the company that does certificate of insurance tracking is smartcompliance.co. Uh, we are hiring in certain regional markets. Uh, we do operate in multiple countries. And so uh, we have been hiring uh, pretty steadily over the last two years through COVID, uh, during COVID, after, <laughs> and, and what we consider our post-COVID. I'm in Texas, so we're post-COVID now. Oh, um, it's over. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and it, COVID's been over in Texas, yeah, I can tell you yeah. that. Yeah. Uh, so we we, uh, we we generally publish them on our website. Of course, some targeted recruiting is never published on our website. Mm-hmm. We go out and and, uh, and recruit folks, but that's, uh, that, that's that's who we are and what we're about. We always love uh, people that have a deep expertise in claims, uh, deep expertise in insurance, uh, and uh, certainly if they're an engineer, they got to know how to code. Uh, they, yeah. they, and, and they got to geek out on it. So yeah, awesome, James. Been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for being Thanks. a guest. Thanks yeah. for your time. As always, this podcast is brought to you by FinPro Search Partners, often simply known as FinPro. FinPro is an executive recruitment business working in the insurance and insure tech space on an international basis. If you would like to find out more about FinPro, please visit our website, www.wearefinpro.com or our FinPro company page on LinkedIn. I've been your host, Alex Bond, and I would personally love to connect with anyone who is interested in the changing world of insurance. So feel free to reach out to me directly, um, either on LinkedIn or via my email, 
of alex at wearefinpro.com. I hope you enjoyed the podcast and I hope to see you back next week. Thank you.